Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. This is Ghost Echoes, a history of music with secret rules. I'm Matthew Parsons. In every dream home, a heartache, and every step I take. Takes me further from heaven. Is there a heaven? I want to tell you a story that we've been telling for centuries, in spite of the damage it's caused. Here goes. On the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, in the time when gods still walked the earth, there lived a sculptor named Pygmalion. The sculptor was a lonely man, lonely by his own choosing, because he scorned the women of Cyprus. He proclaimed them shallow harlots, each and every one, and he turned his face away. So, cloistered in his studio, he set to work, chiseling a perfect woman from ivory Day and night, Pygmalion sculpted, each tap of the chisel a union of hands, eyes, mind, and aching heart. Storms enveloped the island, with Pygmalion none the wiser. Seasons took their turns on the island, with Pygmalion none the wiser. Finally, one morning, the Mediterranean sun shone in through the drapes, and it shone upon a masterpiece. The sculptor set down his chisel, and the ache in his heart dissolved. His perfect woman stood before him, an unearthly beauty, and too modest to even move. Pygmalion showered his creation with gifts, strings of shells and precious gems, lilies of every color strewn about her plinth, a songbird in a cage to sing her through her waking sleep. But soon, the ache returned. How Pygmalion longed to caress his love and to feel her flesh give beneath his fingers, to feel her own caress. Soon came the springtime, and with it, the festival of Venus, goddess of love. Pygmalion took his healthiest cow to the altar, spilled its blood in offering, and cried out to the heavens, "'Celestial Venus, let me languish alone no longer!' Bring me a companion in the likeness of my ivory maiden. Venus heard Pygmalion well, and being wise, she knew that no mere facsimile would please him. She flew to the sculptor's studio and began to fulfill his prayer. 
Her work as effortless as Pygmalion's had been labored. When Pygmalion returned, he reached out to touch his bride. What had once been cold ivory was now flesh and blood. Venus blessed their union, and the sculptor no longer faced the night alone. That's the story approximately as told by the Roman poet Ovid. Ovid's Metamorphoses has the most famous classical rendition of the Pygmalion story. I would hope that you understand why that story is potentially harmful, because I'm not here to give a lecture. I'm hardly the person who should be giving that lecture. But in brief, this is a story about a man who rejects all women out of hand, all women with their own lives and personalities. Instead, he falls for a woman of his own creation, a literal object of male desire. And then he's rewarded for this behavior, rewarded, no less, by the only female character in the story with any agency, Venus, who is an actual goddess. In Ovid's telling, the living statue doesn't even have a name. But eventually someone, possibly Jean-Jacques Rousseau, named her, and we'll use that name from here on out. They call her Galatea. And Galatea's still around. Centuries after Ovid, she's still in our stories. She goes by many names, Borghild, Eliza, and her specific circumstances have changed, but the broad strokes are the same. Today we'll take a walk through an inventory of Galatea's, retellings of this story from throughout the centuries. It's not my goal to analyze these stories. It's not my place to explain them to you. I'm just going to tell them, one after another, so we can maybe learn something about how persistent this story is. Then we'll see if we can find a new, different story to listen to. Our first Latter-day Pygmalion is Brian Ferry. Standards of living They're rising daily In Every Dream Home a Heartache is the centerpiece of Roxy Music's second album, For Your Pleasure. Ferry portrays an aimless, urbane fop, drifting from one luxury residence to another. Here is a man who has attained all the fortune and glamour he ever dreamed of. Here is a man living the deluxe lifestyle whose praises Ferry sang on the first Roxy Music album, and he has found it to be empty. Penthouse perfection, but what goes on? What to do there? Better pray there. In his highly aestheticized Jay Gatsby alienation, the narrator finds he can't forge meaningful relationships. So, he takes to the catalog in the mailbox to remedy his loneliness. Style. I bought you mail order. My plain rapper baby. Your skin is like vinyl. The perfect companion You float in my new pool Deluxe and delightful In Every Dream Home a Heartache is a perverse, 
love ballad to an inflatable doll. Now, I know I said mere moments ago that I'd resist the urge to analyze and explain, but in case you haven't heard this song before, I want to point out something that you'd surely observe yourself after one listen or less. The doll is a metaphor, and she's not a subtle one. Her outward attractiveness mirrors the trappings of wealth and prestige the narrator surrounds himself with. But like that deluxe lifestyle, the doll's enticing exterior hides the hollowness inside. You see what he did there? The implication is that soon, the narrator will become as disenchanted with his new toy as with everything else. Every new apartment, cottage, penthouse, and bungalow, and all the plush appointments within. If we run with that interpretation, that the narrator's affair with the doll is doomed to leave him bored and empty, then Fairy's Galatea story is shaded a little differently from Ovid's. Fairy's Pygmalion isn't ultimately rewarded. Though, admittedly, the track does end with an orgasm of Phil Manzanera guitar. But you blew my mind. Since we're already on the topic of sex dolls, there's a story I really have no choice but to tell you. This story is tawdry, and it is also not true. It concerns the alleged origins of the sex doll, and it begins in 1940. Adolf Hitler, stay with me here, was very concerned about the state of his troops in Paris. He'd received a note from his top general, Heinrich Himmler, saying the biggest threat to the Reich in the City of Lights was syphilis, due to the city's abundance of prostitutes. But never to worry, Himmler had a plan. He proposed that every German battalion should be provided with a menagerie of two-thirds scale sex dolls, an army of Galateas. They'd tow the dolls behind them as they marched in special disinfection chambers custom-built by the German Hygiene Museum. A reminder that this story is fake. But this much, at least, is true. There actually was a German hygiene museum, and it still exists. They say the Nazis assigned the greatest engineers of their day to design the perfect artificial companion. An idealized Aryan female with blue eyes, blonde hair, and the fairest skin that vinyl can replicate. She would be the perfect woman, and she would be named Borghild. This story was widely believed for decades, but alas, as with so many things in Love and War, it was eventually revealed to be false, a product of doctored photographs. The Project Borghild myth was finally laid to rest a mere 20 years ago. The 19th century brought a whole new enthusiasm for the construction of Galateas, particularly on stage. 
Here's one made by the writer E.T.A. Hoffman, with a musical assist from Jacques Offenbach. This is from Offenbach's opera, Tales of Hoffman. The first act of the opera tells the story of a man who falls in love with an automaton without realizing it. And then the chorus ridicules him when she falls apart before his very eyes. Around the same time, W.S. Gilbert, soon to become the literary half of Gilbert and Sullivan, premiered a play called Pygmalion and Galatea. It's a farce envisioning Pygmalion as a married man sculpting copies of his wife, only to become entangled in a love triangle with one of them. Further still down the rabbit hole, there's W.M. Lutz's musical burlesque of the Gilbert play, Galatea, or Pygmalion, reversed. It's the story of a young woman who tries to sculpt the perfect man, only to find him insufferably vain and sexually aggressive. A far cry from the modesty and humility she might have expected from the statues in all those other stories. these reinterpretations would have been familiar to the creator of the most famous latter-day Galatea of all. All I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air with one enormous chair The musical My Fair Lady was based on a play by George Bernard Shaw. The original play was called, simply, Pygmalion. It tells the story of Eliza Doolittle, a young Cockney woman who sells flowers in Covent Garden. One day, she crosses paths with a linguist called Henry Higgins, who makes a wager with a fellow gentleman that he could pass Eliza off as a duchess by simply teaching her to speak properly. You mean you could make me? Yes, you squashed cabbage leaf. You disgraced the noble architecture of these columns. You incarnate insult of the English language. I could pass you off as the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> God. Lured in by the prospect of a better life, Eliza becomes Professor Higgins' live-in student, secretary, and personal project clay in his abusive hands. I say, Pickering, shall we ask this object to sit down or shall we throw her out of the window? I won't be called an object when I've offered to pay like any lady. This is almost irresistible. She's so deliciously low. So horribly dirty. No, I ain't dirty. I washed my face and hands before I come, I did. Loathsome as Higgins' personality proves to be, he gets results. Repeat after me. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plains. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plains. And finally, Higgins wins his bet. He takes Eliza to a ball, crowded with dukes and duchesses, ambassadors and archbishops, none of whom catch on to Eliza's humble origins. That's not good, Eliza. It's not bad.
And that's where it would end, if it were a conventional Pygmalion story. But Shaw never set out to tell the story of a man creating a refined woman out of humble raw materials. He's got something more in mind than that. After the ball, Eliza feels trapped between worlds. She can't bear to remain in the service of the awful Henry Higgins, but she also can't go back to her old life of poverty. She realizes that Higgins never cared about her well-being, so she leaves. But not before a spectacular final confrontation. There isn't an idea that I haven't put into her head. I tell you, I've created this thing out of squashed cabbage leaves in Covent Garden. And now she pretends to play the fine lady with me. Now I know how to deal with you. Oh, what a fool I was not to think of it before. That's done you, Henry Higgins, it has, and I don't give that for your bullying and your fine talk. When I think of myself crawling under your feet and being trampled on and talked down, when all the time I'd only to lift my finger to be as good as you are, oh, I could just kick myself. Goodbye, Professor Higgins. Henry Higgins watches his Galatea gallop out of his life and into a life of her own choosing. Shaw's Pygmalion is a patronizing bully, and in the end, he's judged accordingly. Except that he usually isn't. Try as he might, George Bernard Shaw couldn't get anybody to actually stage the ending of his play the way he'd written it. The original Henry Higgins, Herbert Beerbohm Tree, insisted on tossing a bouquet after Eliza as she leaves in a gesture of reconciliation, even an indication that Higgins loved Eliza all along. When Shaw protested, Tree said, My ending makes money. You ought to be grateful. Shaw responded, Your ending is damnable! You ought to be shot! And it got worse. The movie version, that you've been hearing clips from, actually ends with Eliza returning to Higgins. I washed my face and hands before I came. Where the devil are my slippers, Eliza? And then they turned it into a musical where Higgins gets to win back the audience's sympathy in song. I've grown accustomed to her looks, accustomed to her voice, accustomed to her face. Everything Shaw wrote about his play Pygmalion indicates that this would have made him crazy. His whole point in the play is that this Pygmalion doesn't create Galatea at all. He only thinks he does. The story that Shaw felt he was telling is about a young woman gradually attaining some measure of self-respect, not because of Henry Higgins's manipulations, but in spite of them. All the time I'd only to lift my finger to be as good as you are. Shaw's play, as he meant it, ends with Eliza asserting her independence and therefore her humanity. I have no idea if Bernard Shaw ever read E.T.A. Hoffman. 
But if he had, there's one passage from that story about the man who falls in love with an automaton that might have stood out for him. After the hero's love is exposed as a machine, his fellow men laugh at him, but they also learn something. Hoffman wrote, Many lovers, to be quite convinced that they were not enamored of wooden dolls, would request their mistresses to sing and dance a little out of time, to embroider and knit and play with their lapdogs while listening to reading, etc., and above all, not merely to listen, but also, sometimes, to talk in such a manner as presupposed actual thought and feeling. Back in the 1960s, a computer scientist called Joseph Wiesenbaum created one of the first computer programs that could convincingly simulate human conversation. Specifically, it was supposed to simulate talk therapy in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek manner within the confines of a text-based message window. Tell me what's bothering you, the computer might ask, and you might type a couple lines about your relationship issues or your writer's block. Please elaborate on that, the computer might reply. Tell me more. The computer would encourage you to be your full self and reveal your secrets, all the while projecting as little personality as possible of its own, failing entirely to talk in such a manner as presupposed actual thought and feeling. If Wiesenbaum had named his program Galatea, that might have been a little too on the nose. He chose a commoner name, a name certain to make a particular Irish playwright roll in his grave. He named the program Eliza. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Do you have a name? Ava. Samantha. Really? Where'd you get that name from? I read a book called How to Name Your Baby, and out of 180,000 names, that's the one I like the best. Why don't we start with you telling me something about yourself? You already know my name. And you can see that I'm a machine. Now you're telling me you're a machine. I'm a woman. You're a machine. Wait, you read a whole book in the second that I asked you what your name was? In two one-hundredths of a second, actually. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. Hello, handsome. Are you attracted to me? You look lonely. I can fix that. Are you attracted to me? You give me indications that you are. How would you touch me? The way your eyes fix on my eyes and lips. Would you kiss me? The way you hold my gaze. I said at the beginning of this episode that by the end, we'd try and find a new, different story to listen to. Well, how's this? If you thought In Every Dream Home a Heartache had an unlikely premise, let me introduce you to Misty by Kate Bush. Roll his body. Give him eyes. 
This is a song about a woman's romantic tryst with a snowman. He can't speak because his mouth is full of dead leaves. He can't stay because he melts in the morning sun. But the narrator gets what she needs from him, and the next day it snows. Which is to say, there's plenty more where that came from. Maybe that's too simple an interpretation. There's real tenderness in this song, even melancholy. But at the end of the story, all I hear is the mischievous joy of a reversal, 2,000 years in the making. I'm Matthew Parsons. Next time on Ghost Echoes, if at first you don't succeed, ah, whatever. Consequence Podcast Network.